Hi there and welcome. You're listening to the Diving In podcast, brought to you by Virginia Seymour and Louise Jones. This podcast is part of a lifelong conversation between friends about the books we're reading and the issues they make us think about. That also goes for the movies and television we're watching and the podcasts we're currently hooked on. We might even talk about what's in the news and anything else we're diving into this week. Diving in. Lou, I'm so looking forward to our conversation today because we're going to be doing one of my favourite types of books, which is British authors. Yeah, me too. There's so many British authors that I love and I've been really looking forward to doing this. So for our conversation today, I read Elizabeth Taylor's book, A Game of Hide and Seek. Mm. And Elizabeth Taylor was not the movie star. This Elizabeth Taylor was born in 1912 and she died in 1975. You might know of her as she wrote Mrs. Palfrey at the oh, Claremont. Yes. Oh, wow. So that was made into a film starring Dame Joan mm-hmm. Plowright, who was married to um, Sir Lawrence Olivia. And she had another book also adapted to screen, which was a book called Angel. And the movie has a different name. I think it's called The Something of an Angelica and it stars Romola Garay. Oh. So Elizabeth Taylor had quite a long writing career, although some people believe that she was never as hugely successful as she probably deserved and certainly not as some other female novelists from her time because people confused her with the movie star. Gosh. And I'm not sure how, in practical terms, that translates, but apparently that was one of the theories. Well, it would be hard to measure in yes. her era yes. the impact, wouldn't it? It would be Whereas very hard. today it would be a lot easier. Yeah, true, with social media. And, and maybe also she was an era of an era where people didn't change their names, although maybe they do with non-diplumes, but yeah. I, you yeah. know, it's interesting that she didn't. Yes. Well, she was an incredibly private person, apparently, and I think she really feared publicity. She mm. stayed right under the radar. And it, reading about her, it did make me wonder how she would have coped in this modern age mm. where authors have to, you know, just... Sell their own books. It's very exposing publicity mm. tours that they have to do to promote their books and I don't think they get a lot of say in it. I, I wouldn't like it if I was an author, but no. I don't think she would have coped with that at all. But she was regarded by some very prominent writers and critics of the time as being the best writer of her generation. Oh, wow. And some people have said she was on a par with Jane Austen. I wouldn't go that far, mm. but I do really love her writing and I've read several of her books. Mm. There's Angel, which I mentioned, which is excellent, and Mrs Palfrey at the Claremont, which is the most beautifully poignant novel about a lady in an old people's home and her friendship with another character. It's so well done. And my friend Beth Benini, who I met through Instagram, through my Bookstagram account, gave me a beautiful vintage edition of The Wedding Party, which I really loved as well. And that book always brings back happy memories of meeting up with my bookish friends oh, in London. Oh, lovely. Yeah. yeah. So she wrote about 12 novels, uh, which is great because I still have a few to go, and a few collections of short stories. And I'd been wanting to read A Game of Hide and Seek for ages because I've got this beautiful edition. This was her fifth novel, 
And I'll post a photo of these, the beautiful Virago modern classics. I'll post beautiful it to covers. our inter- beautiful Instagram covers. page. Mm. And this particular edition has a lovely foreword by Elizabeth Jane Howard, who wrote the Cazalet yes. series. Yes. And she was one of Elizabeth Taylor's very close friends. So I think Elizabeth Taylor would fall into the category that a lot of bookish people use these days of being middle-brow. And I'm not 100% sold on the name of that category because I think it sounds a bit... As though, yeah, a bit, a bit boring, a yeah. bit uninteresting. Mm. But I gather that it's not regarded at all as a pejorative term. Mm. I think middle-brow is meant to convey that the books are very accessible and can, are able to be enjoyed by a lot of people. So... To that extent, um, I suspect, you know, there's a lot of authors that would fit into that category. There's some others who would fall, who are regarded as being in that category would be Elizabeth Jane Howard with those Cazalet books, um, Mary Wesley with the Chamomile oh, Lawn, yes, yes. Daphne du Maurier would probably be in there, Elizabeth Bowen and E.M. Delafield who wrote The Diary of a Provincial Lady. Okay. That's hilarious yeah. and she would definitely fall into that category as well. So... A Game of Hide and Seek is a very quiet, gentle story of two people whose attraction to one another lasts their whole life. So the novel starts between the two world wars and it spans their entire lifetimes. And I'll read the opening sentence just to give you a flavour of Mm. her writing. It starts, Sometimes in the long summer's evenings, which are so marked a part of our youth, Harriet and Veezy played hide-and-seek with the younger children, running across the tufted meadows, their shoes yellow with the pollen of buttercups. Mm. Her writing's just that beautiful, gentle, very evocative style. It's, mm. it's very descriptive. So there's a young girl, Harriet, who spends her summers looking after the young children of her mother's best friend, Caroline. And Caroline and Harriet's mother had been rigididge suffragettes right, and had been arrested and imprisoned. Oh, so they were quite the, progressive the real that. deal. Mm. And this experience of having been in prison had bound them together for life. They live, you know, only a, a mile or two apart. And it also gave them a very cool mythical status in their families. Mm. And Caroline has a rather neglected young nephew called Veezy who she has to stay for the summer every year. And this is where Harriet and Veezy meet as young children. They form their attachment in their teens. And Elizabeth Taylor draws this wonderful character portrait of Caroline and her husband. They're not very sympathetic or flattering but so recognisable. And she really does a great job of conjuring up with such clarity those each of the characters. Mm. So Harriet hasn't done very well at school. She clearly doesn't have the get up and go of her suffragette mother and she's just sort of filling in time, caring for Caroline's children while she decides what to do with her life. And she is portrayed quite sympathetically. She's a gentle, unworldly girl who's not ambitious for a career and I think she's probably just a very much a product of her time. Vesey, on the other hand, is depicted as this slightly angst-ridden young guy. He's a bit neglected by his distracted parents and he has ambitions to be a writer and later to be an actor. He's sort of self-absorbed and bored and he likes causing trouble (laughs) and he likes the attention that being contrary brings him. So they're obviously quite well off. Yes, they're quite a comfortable, very middle-class, comfortable 
group of people, which I imagine probably many of the suffragettes did have that privilege. Mm. I don't know actually what the breakdown would be, but that's the image that I have. I watched a really fantastic little video in Melbourne at the Art Gallery about the suffragettes. I think it was the Melbourne Art Gallery. Um, the National Gallery of Victoria. It was mm. fascinating with footage of them all in, mm. with their banners and they were very interesting. I don't think we've looked into them enough or looked at how far we have or haven't come. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it was sort of great gains and then things began to slow down again. Yeah, yeah we're sort of going backwards. <laughs> so, of course, Veezy seems quite louche and exciting to 18-year-old innocent Harriet and she falls madly in love with him and to the extent that he can, he falls for her too. So the book is divided into two parts and the first part is set when Harriet and Veezy are aged sort of 18 to 21 mm-hmm. And then Harriet goes on to marry Charles, who's a very ordinary sort of local solicitor, and she marries him mainly because he asked her. And VC goes off, tacks up acting and sort of completely disappears from her life. And then part two opens about 15 years later and Harriet and Charles have a young daughter named Betsy and she's about 15 and she's full of her own teenage wrangling. And then the whole second part of the novel is all about VC coming back into Harriet's mm. life and the impact that has and and how that all unravels. And I won't go into any details about how it unfolds because it's a spoiler, but it's beautifully written. It's written in quite a spare style. It's Mm. very quiet and reflective. It's very internal. The title has a lovely double meaning. So there's the meaning of that opening sentence when they were looking after the younger children, but there is definitely a game of hide-and-seek going on between... Throughout their lives. Them, Mm. exactly. And it has a very good ending, and I do love a good ending. So I would recommend Elizabeth Taylor. Well, I I wanted to discuss a delightful book that I've read called A Single Thread by Tracy Chevalier. It's a relatively new release from Borough Press, which um, is an imprint of HarperCollins. Now, you may be familiar with Tracy Chevalier. She's the author of the hugely successful Girl with a Pearl Earring. I loved that book. Yeah, so did I. So did I. So that was, of course, about the anonymous girl who featured in the Dutch artist Vermeer's painting. And she was, in fact, the 16-year-old maid in the Vermeer household uh, greet. And she's also written a book, Remarkable Creatures, which is about the fossil or dinosaur hunter, uh, the paleontologist Mary Anning, which I haven't read. I have. Any good? Excellent. And our friend Kim, on the strength of that book, went there, and I can't think of the name of the town it's set in, and I know people who go and, and you can still get fossils. Yeah, fascinating the history. Ammonite fossils. Yeah. Yeah. I've read, I, as a result of hearing about it, I've, I've read about I'll Mary Anning. I'll lend you my copy because it's so good. Oh, excellent. Because it's all about that era with Darwin and mm. the Darwinism mm. and, and the tension between the church and the science. Yes. And the tide was starting mm. to turn in terms of what people believed about the world. Well, I, I think, you know, retrospectively she's received the accolades that she deserved but certainly didn't necessarily Not at, at the, the time. time. No, partly because of her gender, I imagine. Mm. Um, So Chevalier is actually an American. She grew up in Washington, D.C., where her father was a photographer for the Washington Post. But then after university, she moved to do further studies in the U.K. and she's been there ever since. Oh, okay. So this is the historical fiction genre. But what Chevalier does in her books is she sort of weaves a tale 
about someone who is fairly ordinary, who's sort of a bit player, who, but who's caught in or is adjacent to sort of uh. quite a distinctive sort of event or period of time in history. And she's done that again with Single Thread. So the book is set in 1932, again, like your book, Between the Two World mm. Wars. And, you know, this was an extraordinary time. I've, as a result of reading this book, I've really reflected on that period of history. So, you know, 14 years on, people were still living with the consequences and devastation of World War I and the impact that it had on a whole generation of people. And, of course, on the horizon, tensions are building in Europe. And one of the strengths of Chevalier's writing is she is incredibly meticulous about getting ah. the details right. Um, she has her own website, which I'll put in the show notes. It's very interesting. She publishes some of the research that she's done and she really drills down into the, into the history of the period and gets the details right. So Violet Speedwell is 38 years old. She's a typist for an insurance company in the large town of Winchester in Hampshire in southwest England. Her family lives in Southampton, further south. Her father has died and one of her two brothers, George, has also died in the Great War. Uh, and her older brother, Tom, other brother rather, Tom, is married with children and he has to keep an eye on, on his mother because Violet has left home, which, you know, strikes you as an, an unusual thing to have done. She doesn't have the best relationship with her mother. Her mother is very critical of her. Violet has also lost her fiancé, Lawrence, in World War I at the Battle of Passchendaele in Belgium. So it's quite that paternalistic thing where the eldest son has to look after the mother. Well, I think he's keeping an eye on her because his sister is being, you know, has sort of left the duty of... Neglected her. Yeah, exactly. Mm. If, you, if you're a single woman without What a were you partner, doing if you weren't you looking after your mother? You should be looking after your mother. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So Violet is, in many respects, no different to thousands of women who found themselves without partners mm. in a society where, of course, available men had suddenly become in very short supply and, and this generation of women were known as the surplus women and they were they were left behind and they suddenly needed to step up and fend for themselves so of course some of them would have had children and would have been married many of them would have simply had partners and in um, Chevalier's website she includes some of the statistics and which I found really interesting by the end of World War One, 1.7 million British men had been wow. killed and so there was this huge sort of unequal Deficit, distribution yeah. of gender. So that the 1921 UK census revealed that there were 1.75 million more women than men in the oh United Kingdom. And, and the press loved it. So the press were extremely critical of these women. The Daily Mail described them as the superfluous women are a disaster to the human race. So they were sort of in no man's land. They Through no fault of their through own. Through no fault of their own. And it actually reminded me a little bit of veterans returning from war. It was a similar sort of thing. I mean, It I'm makes not, no sense. No. These women had kept the f home fires burning, literally. Yep. Yes. And had also stepped up to do work during the war. Yep. Uh, they lost their partners, their fiancés, children's fathers, uh, fiancés, yeah, yeah. brothers, whatever, mm. and then they were discarded by society. So it was just absolutely fascinating, and, and I'm certainly going to drill down a little bit more into this period of history because it's really interesting. Mm. So by the age of 38, Violet is probably quite a determined woman. She's quite different from her 24-year-old self at the start of the war. It's been quite a while since she's lost her fiancé and she does allude to sitting in bars occasionally drinking glasses of sherry and occasionally oh. having casual sex with men. Wow. She refers to them as her sherry men, which I think is delightful. Oh, how interesting. But a point obviously is reached where she just decides to leave home and it comes at a cost to her because 
her modestly paid job, she now has to pay board from that wage, but she considers that it's, her it's worth it. Yeah, absolutely. Her independence is worth living wow. very frugally by herself in a boarding house. So she's in Winchester and she happens upon a group of women in Winchester Cathedral. And they are a society of broderers. And the broderers were the real-life organisation of women who embroidered the kneelers and the cushions for the worshippers at Winchester Cathedral to kneel in comfort, basically, when you pray. Uh, And also the bench cushions and the bags for arms, so the collection bags. She goes to the cathedral for evensong. And, look, she's lost her faith since the loss of her brother and fiancé, but... She finds it sort of quite a nice activity to do as a single woman. She, she turns up at the cathedral and there is a service being conducted by the dean to thank the women for their work and to bless the kneelers. And she sort of pushes her way into the group. She's sort of quite curious. And she sits down with them and she pretends she's been invited and then she decides that she would like to join them. And she's sort of intrigued by some of the designs on the kneelers and the fact that the women just leave their initials on the kneelers. Not surprisingly, this group attracts a certain kind of woman. Yeah. For some one reason or another, they may not fit into neatly into the confines of society, post-war society. Yeah. And many of them join for companionship. And others, I think it's probably for a devotion and a strong sense of sort of service that still was part of society. Anyway, there's some real characters in the group and Chevalier draws them so well. Um, There's an older, sterner lady who inspects their work, um, Mrs B, and and another one that teaches them the stitches. I can just picture Mrs B. I know. She she sits at a table and they all have to bring up their work to her. And, you know, there's a lot of... With her glasses sort of peering at the the, the workmanship. Exactly. Just check if there's a stitch that's sort of a little bit higher than others and she makes people unstitch them and you know and that's actually how you learn you stitch and then you unstitch and then you stitch and then you unstitch and there's actually for people who are in really interested in embroidery and stitching it's a really lovely book because there's a lot of detail about the process of embroidery as well and there's a very open-minded character louisa p um, who has the respect of everybody because she's actually the one that comes up with the designs she's the designer and even grumpy mrs b defers to her and louisa takes a shine to violet and i think she sort of recognizes a rebelliousness in violet that she also has and she encourages violet to challenge herself so violet is meant to start off on samplers but it's very soon she's actually making a kneeler now chevalier has based the character of louisa on the real life louisa perez who was a well-known embroiderer from the period and she in fact did end up designing the cushions for winchester cathedral And there's information about her on on Chevalier's website as well. So that's quite interesting. So Violet forms a friendship with a very engaging and lively woman in the group, Gilda, another girl who defies convention in ways that I won't describe. But she introduces Violet one day to an older gentleman, Arthur Knight, who rings the bells at Winchester Cathedral. Now, Arthur is married and he and his wife have also lost a son in the war. So he and Violet are sort of drawn together with this common thread. (laughs) a lovely thread and they start an unconventional sort of acquaintance and friendship and Arthur draws Violet into the sort of science and mystery of bell ringing he rings the bells in his own village that has only five bells and also the more complicated bells of the cathedral and her affection 
uh, for Arthur grows. And she becomes more and more independent and they contrive occasions to spend together. And, of course, there is the social moray of the time and the judgment and attitudes mm. of people that intrude into her life and also into the lives of her friends and sort of pushing the boundaries of what society expected of young single women uh, in the 1930s. It's a really sort of gentle and moving book. I did cry a lot at the end, but oh. not, not, not in a negative way, but it really was very moving. And I think Violet is a real standard bearer for all the surplus women, and I think that's what Chevalier's intended. They end up living lives that they didn't imagine they ever would, and they make choices that they never imagined that they would in that era. And, of course, it wasn't an easy thing to do uh, in an era that probably would rather... Uh, forget that surplus women even existed. Uh, and then, of course, it's compounded with World War II. And at a time when those women were not expected to uh, have fulfilling careers or to attain any sort of political office or Absolutely. run corporations yeah. or yeah, any in. of the things that they had the potential to do, given that they didn't have husbands and children. Imagine what some of those women could have achieved. Yeah, absolutely. If they were highly educated as well and the glass ceiling wasn't there and they could at least put all their energy into their careers. Yeah, and I, and I wonder in some ways whether or not it, it really was a turning point for women because suddenly you do have these women who otherwise would have been wives and mothers yes. and would have never had jobs, would have just yes. stayed at home looking after their families and they find themselves in no man's land, yeah. no prospect of a relationship on the horizon. Yeah. And like your Violet living in a little one room. Like, yeah, in it's a boarding house. It's not like living, in a, living on your own as we understand no. it now where you're in a share house with lots of friends and that would have been in someone's home in their one spare little bedroom. Yeah, and, and for the motivated ones amongst them, it probably did make them, you know, new feminists and probably yeah. did make them. Yeah. I mean, certainly Violet, it does push Violet to sort of stand up for herself in a way yeah. that she probably would never yeah. ha have done so. I certainly knew, I've always known that the end of the Second World War was a big turning point mm. for feminism because there were so many women who had had to, you know, become work in factories and take on all the jobs because there were no men. And then when they came back, there was a bit of an outcry because a lot of employers said, off you go now, back to your homes. Uh, we're going to take Johnny back to his, mm. you know, he's going to take his job back. Well, I suppose there was a number of reasons for that. World War One. Uh, I don't wish to sort of diminish it, was four years, not the True. length of yes. World War Two, yes. and so the sort of the home front effort that was yes. required during World War Two, they did sort of really get everybody engaged in the war effort. So I imagine women were working for the war effort That's in, true. for World War Two more than they were during World yes. War One, and also things build cumulatively. Yes. So little advances were probably made during World War One, and then in that gap. So then by the time at the end of World War Two. The world looked quite different. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, look, I would really recommend this book. I think it will make a beautiful Christmas gift. Um, I'm mm. going to give it to my mum. Spoiler alert, yeah, mum, would, you're yeah. getting it for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Even if the period doesn't attract you, the just the, the detail about the embroiderers and the mm. bells, it's, it's really delightful. I really book. want to read that Really now. delightful. That sounds gorgeous. What else have you been reading? Um, the other one that I did, which was... Gosh, we've covered so many different types of books from my sort of very quiet Elizabeth Taylor, which is all about a love between two people. And then we've got your embroiderers. And then I'm doing my next one is Barbara Pym. Oh, lovely. Who is a completely different type of author again. 
So she has a huge slew of loyal fans who say, you know, she's their favourite author. And I would also put her in the middle brow category if I had to slot her somewhere. She also wrote about a dozen novels, similarly to Elizabeth Taylor, and I have read most of them. Her writing is completely different from Elizabeth Taylor's. It's not at all internal or reflective. It's rather sharp and slightly acerbic and comical, or comedic is probably a better word. And she also has a very clear eye when it comes to capturing ordinary people. I would say she's more like Muriel Spark. She, okay. Her characters don't have as much depth. It's a bit more like watching a play, but the entertainment value is still there because she can see the comedy in British society. So she was born in 1913, so only a year after Elizabeth Taylor, and she died in 1980, so also mm. quite young. And she enjoyed a lot more success than Elizabeth Taylor, although there's quite an interesting story about Barbara Pym because her books went completely out of fashion in the 1960s and no one would publish her books. So she had some early success and then she became very unpopular. And then in 1977, the Times Literary Supplement asked a number of distinguished writers and critics for one of their columns that mm. they were doing to name the most underrated writer of the 20th century. And both the poet Philip Larkin and the historian Lord David Cecil named Barbara Pym. Oh, wow, how interesting. And boom, just like that, her popularity bounced back. Lots of new imprints. It was incredible. So yeah. she had literally nothing published at all from 1963 to 1977, which is a massive period to be on the outer, but she kept on writing during that time. But it's a very glaring example of the fickleness of modern mm. society and the fashion trends in publishing. Mm. I mean, it happens in all spheres, I suspect, but... It was just interesting to me reading about this, that the power that back in 1977, so pre-any sort of social media, all it took was two prominent people to say, Barbara Pym's wonderful, and then everybody jumps on board mm. again and publishers change their tunes and start wanting to bring her back into the fold. And how wonderful that she had seven years of such success before she died. Yes. You know, yes. You know that she actually got to experience. She did. Yeah, you're right. And she came back into favour and she was even shortlisted for the Booker Prize oh, for wow. one of her books. So it was clearly just a, one of those fashion things because yeah. she is a very good writer. So the book I read this week is An Academic Question, which was published posthumously in 1986, although according to correspondence, she had written most of it in about 1971 when she was sort of in the writing wilderness. And her publisher had to piece it together from various drafts and she'd tried to polish it up when she was receiving treatment for breast cancer. So it's not one of her best, but it is a fun light read nonetheless. So this novel's set in an academic world with a group of lecturers at a minor British university and their wives, who are very much second-rate citizens. Mm. They type up their husband's work and they help catalogue their stuff. <laughs> Just appalling. Mm. And it's told from the point of view of a wife, and her name is Caro Grimstone. Mm. And just as an aside, in the last three books I've read, I've had Mrs Groins yes. in the Lynn Trust book. Mm. I've had Mr Grimethorpe in my Dorothy L. Sayers, and now I've got Mrs Grimstone in my uh, Barbara Pym. So these, these books are all right up my alley. <laughs> So, Caro Grimstone has a rather boring life and she's the wife of Alan and he's a very ambitious anthropologist. 
and she decides to go to the local old people's home and read to them. And it's it's a real caricature of an old people's home where the people are in bed, oh. which just, you know, so it wouldn't happen. Mm. And I, well, they'd have to be all sort of on the way out. Yes. One of the people she's assigned to read to is a famous retired anthropologist who's written a paper which contains data that her husband, Alan, badly wants to get his hands oh. on. So this wasn't by design. This is a coincidence. Well, he sort of encouraged her to go okay. and work there because he knew that this guy was mm. lying in bed in this old people's home. But I don't think he could have manufactured no, that she no. would actually get to work him, but it was very convenient to him. Mm. And so one day Alan decides to join her while she's reading to the old man and when the old professor starts to nod off, Alan steals the manuscript from the old professor's papers and tucks it into his briefcase. And I'm not going to reveal the plot, but it's quite a quirky, amusing one. It's got some unexpected turns and revelations. There are some fabulous minor characters. There's this elderly lady called Kitty Jeffries, and she's a woman who's been living all her life in the Caribbean, and she's had an army of servants, and she's had to leave the Caribbean island because the locals elected an all-black government. <laughs> And she has a son called Coco, which is short for Corcoran. And Coco is a rather fastidious bachelor who loves to gossip. You can just picture him yes. and he sort of goes around with mother and uh, oh. they've just got nothing better to do yes, than cause trouble. Mm. And Barbara Pym does that thing I love, which is she brings back minor characters from other, other books, books yes. which I, I, mm. I love playing detective and spotting them. So there's a, a nun in here, Sister Dew. That you've seen before. She's popped up in yeah. other ones. So this isn't probably the one I would start with if you're thinking of reading a Barbara Pym, but I would definitely recommend her if you want a sort of a light easy holiday, sort of holiday yeah, great, read. great holiday read and n nothing too heavy or mm. gruelling or depressing she's really good well the other book that i read for today is nicola upson's book stanley and elsie it's another work of, sort of historical fiction sort of based on the real life story of elsie um, who was a young 22 year old maid employed by Stanley Spencer and Hilda Carline, who were two bohemian British artists uh, in the 1920s. They were both graduates of the Slade Art School in London. Uh, and they're both in their 30s when they employ Elsie to be their maid and also to look after their little daughter, Sheeran. Um, they were both noted artists and uh, Stanley um, Spencer is actually on the record as saying that he thought his wife Hilda was a better artist than him. Um, but of course, not surprisingly, Stanley became the more celebrated of the Aww. two. He was a pretty religious guy and he became very well known for his paintings depicting biblical scenes. He grew up in the village of Cookham in Berkshire and he was always drawn back to that village. Uh, and he, he often painted... Um, his biblical scenes within the Cookham landscape and amongst them were images of Cookham inhabitants and, ah. and residents because he always referred to that village as his village in heaven. And he was known for his paintings largely that became very large memorials to World War I and World War II. So again, here we are in this period between the two yes. wars in this book. In this story, the Spencers are living in Berkeley in Hampshire because Stanley is painting canvases for a chapel and the chapel walls, which um, he's doing as a commission for some benefactors. And Hilda is very unhappy and she's not painting very much uh, and they all live in a, a fairly small cottage um, with Elsie. 
And of course, Elsie um, becomes privy because she can't possibly avoid it to their growing marital discord mm. uh, and their arguments. And they increasingly confide their criticisms of each other to her. Elsie becomes very fond of Stanley, probably a little bit too fond, <laughs> uh, but she's a very attentive and diligent housekeeper uh, and she pretty much becomes indispensable to the whole family. And Stanley's attentions are eventually turned to another woman, another artist, Patricia Patrice, who they all meet when the family goes back to Cookham for a summer holiday. And around the same time, Elsie meets a local farmer, Ken, with whom she starts to court. And it's for one of these very early dates with Ken that she gets dressed up in her best dress, which is a sort of brown velvet dress, and Hilda asks her to delay her departure on the date from the cottage because she wants to paint Elsie in the dress. So she gets Elsie to stand by the mantelpiece and then she gets her to put the dress back on for subsequent sittings and she eventually creates a portrait which exists to this day. Oh. Yeah. And Stanley's quite competitive and he decides that he'll do the same. It's at a time when he and Hilda are going through quite a lot of arguments and friction and he stands behind Hilda and sort of paints the same painting but from a slightly different (laughs) angle. And does that also exist today? It does. And the benefactors who were creating the chapel that Stanley was painting, they actually purchased this painting. And originally... They bought his but not hers. Yes, correct. Yeah. Stanley and Hilda ended up keeping Hilda's painting of Elsie, which I believe is meant to be a far better work. Of course. Um, But Stanley's (laughs) painting was purchased by his benefactors and he originally referred to it as The Country Girl, but I believe it's been retitled as Country Girl Elsie. Right. But originally he just called it the country girl. I mean, look, Stanley's obsessed with his wife. He sort of can't live with her. He can't live without her. There's a constant carping, you know, and as a matter of history, he was a very moody, you know, it's it's on the record as he was a very moody guy and he's sort of very self-obsessed. And, you know, what I found a little bit unusual about this book, I understand that Hilda and Stanley Spencer were artists and they were very liberal and unconventional for the period of the 1930s. But I did find it that it was odd in the book how openly Elsie spoke to Spencer and Hilda and how sort of familiar she was with her, her employers. Right. And sort of right from the get-go, within within the first year of her working for them, she sort of has having quite personal discussions with them and she's challenging them. And it just seemed to me a little bit unusual for a 22-year-old maid in that era to sort of have that level of intimacy. When you think of the British class system at the time, yeah, it just, it just didn't seem. Place, didn't yeah, I just didn't seem, or didn't always seem authentic to me. And Hilda and Stanley both reveal sort of so much of their private thinking and their feelings to Elsie. And, you know, I, she was obviously a, a bright, a very bright woman and she'd been a maid previously with another family. But I, I just think she would have been a little bit more deferential. That's just, yeah. that's just my sort of reaction to it. She doesn't seem to tiptoe around them I think to the extent that I would have thought that she would and certainly Nicola Upson largely for a large part of the book almost has her as one of their peers and it, and so there were parts of it that, that didn't ring true but the story sort of begins to get a little bit more pace to it when Hilda becomes pregnant with her second child she spends a bit of time in London at a parent's house with Sharon the little girl and she gets Elsie to join her and they have a new baby Unity and they all return to the country. But the Spencers decide that they will send their first daughter, Sharon, to whom Elsie is completely attached because she's looked after her for four years and she does everything for her, a way to live with relatives in London. 
And Elsie is absolutely heartbroken. And it leads to sort of a major row between Stanley and Elsie. Uh, and she confronts him about his parenting and about his relationship with the other artist. So I'm going to leave the story there. It, it's a very interesting book. And for me, it, it sort of made me do some independent reading about Stanley yeah. Spencer and Hilda I love Hilda that when Carline. books do that, when they yeah. make you go off and beaver away and yeah. research. Yeah, it was good. I, I didn't know a lot about his artwork or Hilda's for that matter. The chapel that Stanley was painting is the Sandham Memorial Chapel and he took six years to complete it. The internal paintings uh, are sort of on huge canvases on the walls inside the chapel, 17 paintings in all. And he also, um, he, he was going to do some murals, but I think there was some concern that there was going to be too much damp. So he also did an enormous altar piece as well. And the scenes that he painted are largely um, scenes from World War One. But they're soldiers doing some quite mundane things, um, you know, packing their their packs, cooking breakfast. So um, not in the trenches? No, or... it largely from carrying out their duties, really, sort of mundane things. And that they're inspired by his own service as an orderly in the Royal Medical Corps in the UK and also in Macedonia. So the soldiers in the scenes are largely him. Right. There is a, a huge piece I, I believe above the altar which is a large cross it's called the resurrection and Christ is diminished in the picture but there's a lot of soldiers near a white cross it look I think a lot of people will really enjoy the book I think it's going to be popular but for me as historical fiction goes I very much preferred Tracy Chevalier's book mm. Just when you were speaking about that, Lou, it really put me in mind of another great book, which is really a novella, actually, J.L. Carr, C-A-R-R's book, um, A Month in the Country. Mm. And that's also, and it's ages since I've read it, so I'm not all that clear on the details, but it's a painter who has served in the war mm. coming and painting a chapel. Oh, wow. He's been commissioned to paint. Sounding remarkably it's, similar. Yeah, very similar. It's wow. made me want to go and get it out, actually, yes, and, and read it again, because it's a really quick read. Wow. I think this sort of thing happened a lot. A lot of people were commissioned to do sculptures. I know in mm. Australia, a lot of mm. country towns commissioned people to do, you know, the unknown soldier in the middle of the town. So there was a lot of money spent after each of the wars commemorating the battles and, and the sacrifices. Absolutely. Because a lot of towns lost most of their men. Yeah, generation. Well, in this yeah. case, the Berend family, who were obviously very wealthy, they actually commissioned an architect to build the chapel and then they commissioned Stanley to do the paintings. And it was because Mary Berend's brother had been lost in the war mm. and it was to commemorate. Yeah. That's um, interesting, isn't mm. it? What have you been diving into? I've been loving the TV series Years and Years yes. on SBS. Have you been watching that I too? I certainly have. It stars Emma Thompson and she's a renegade British politician. It's dystopian. It has an excellent cast and it's just fantastic, it isn't is it? It is absolutely fantastic and she is brilliant. She is so mm. good. I love the three generations. It looks mm. at three generational family in Manchester and I love the fact that it goes 15 years yeah, into the incredible. future. So when I say dystopian, I think that conjures up an image of a really different world that's unrecognisable mm. to us. But the thing I love about this series is that to all appearances, everything looks the same. Yes. 
And then when you look closely, the technology is much more advanced and you're sort of lulled into thinking, this is just a family that, as we know now. We can all, deal with this. Yeah, we can deal yeah, with this. It all feels very familiar. Yeah. And then they'll do something with a device or a robot or something and you're just jolted into being reminded this is in the future and, and how much things have changed. Yes. But it's entirely believable that the Completely. technology and the advances that we have in 2019 could by 2023 or 26, totally. whatever. Have be, evolved yeah, have to evolved. that, to that yeah, level. It's very clever. I absolutely loved the teenage daughter who wears the face mask with the filters. Incredible. It's hard to describe, but they're sort of like the filters that we use on social media that we can use on Instagram yeah. videos. And it's like a clear sort of mask and she just literally hides behind that, hides yeah. from the world with a cat face on. Yes, and she does the little ears and the little... And it speaks. The mouth moves when she moves. And she can change it depending on her moods, can't she? She can it's, change the face. It's extraordinary. <laughs> I just absolutely love it. I mean, I always find it huge fun to imagine what the future holds in terms of technology. I love thinking that stuff we can't even dream of is going to become commonplace. And a lot of the technology really does change the way they interact and the way humans interact yes. with yeah. each other. Yeah. So the mother is always saying, don't send me a message. I'm right here in yes. front of you. Yeah. <laughs> and she won't take the filter off when she's talking to her mother. And I mean, you can feel that frustration, can't you? Like, you know, like we, we probably have with our kids on, you know, yes. lesser technology. Yes. So the way it plays out is so good. So back in the day, you know, teenagers would just slam their door in the bedroom and, yeah. and disappear. Now they just put a filter on. <laughs> And send you texts on your yeah, phone. Yeah, and, <laughs> and, of course, it's going further, as we know. They're trying to create this transhuman concept as well, which we I love perhaps go that. into, a, into too, much, too much detail yeah, for people. Yeah. But, uh, but I did love that where they thought that she was coming out to them as a trans person. They'd been sneakily <laughs> looking at her emails and things and, and the websites she'd been on and it was trans this and trans that and yeah. they're all ready to be accepting. Oh, we don't mind if you're a boy or a girl. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and she doesn't want to be a human. <laughs> yeah, it's just incredible. Just uh, incredible. I did not see that coming yeah. at all. And it's a fantastic cast of people. You know, it's Such got Anne Reid in it as the grandmother. and She's perfect. Yeah, people will know her. Because she's all homely and yeah. she's the anchor, yeah. She? And she's sort of the generation yes. where none of this went yeah. on. And she brings them back down to ground because she's so sarcastic. And yeah. Yeah, she's yeah. fabulous. I also really love the way it depicts that history goes on and on repeating itself and humans just don't learn from the mistakes of the past. I know. So in episode two when there's the, the banking crash and there is a literal run on the bank, just the same as in the Great Depression, mm. And there's people queued up around the corner wanting to withdraw their savings and even the policeman who has been put there to keep everyone in order and this huge crowd are all getting irate and their money, they, they know they're not going to get their money back. And then he ends up panicking and joining the mob and banging his fist on the door yeah. and shouting, open up. I think he suddenly, you can see, he suddenly thinks, hang on a minute. I've got money in yeah. this bank. And, and, it's, <laughs> and I think it's because multiple banks then start being targeted. And then he's thinking, hang on a minute. <laughs> Bugger my job. I'm going to just get my money back. Yeah. It, it was very Doctor Who-y to me. It's oh, got a okay. slight Doctor Who feel to it. Mo you know, the current Doctor, modern, yeah, I, more modern I, I, series. Yeah, yeah. I'm um, not a massive Doctor Who watcher, so I'm not sure. But It's just, it's brilliantly written. And I read, I read a review that he's 
been trying to write this for years. It's been on the cards that he and would, you would have he to keep changing it and updating yeah. it to go fifteen yeah. more years. Yeah, and apparently he has written some episodes of Doctor Who. The oh, guy who's written this, okay. but I look, I love it. Yeah, just love I it. I cannot wait for more episodes yeah. to come out. And there's only six. There's only six oh, episodes. Oh, they'll, yeah. they'll definitely produce another yeah, one. Yeah, they will. They will. It's so good. Um, and the other thing that I've been enjoying this week is the podcast Fortunately with Fee and Jane, which oh, yes. is an old favourite of mine, but I've actually gone back and listened to some early episodes just because I felt like doing it for fun. So Fee Glover and Jane Garvey are two very experienced British BBC broadcasters and they have these beautiful mellifluous voices and they're very funny and quick, very quick-witted. And originally the BBC asked them to sit in the piazza outside BBC house <laughs> and chat about any radio programs that they'd been enjoying. And I think it was back before podcasts were a big thing and the BBC thought, oh, what are, what are these things, podcasts? We better, we better get on board. And they sort of treated them like the canary down the mine and said, well, you two can go and sit in the piazza and, and do a podcast podcast and it started off these two women you know made jokes at the beginning they're just colleagues we're not friends and there was a slight sort of bite a little bit of an edge in their conversations and they've been doing it now for about three or four years and it's gorgeous to watch as they've actually become yeah, good friends. Incredible. They're really good yes. friends now and they go to each other's houses. And So you're watching this friendship evolve and they bounce off each other yeah. beautifully. Whereas they're, they used to rub. A bit yeah, yeah. yeah, And one of them is sort of a bit warmer than the other mm. and she's probably the facilitator in the, in the friendship. But the funniest part about them is that they started their podcast. I don't think they really knew or cared what they were doing. But uh, then they were nominated for the comedy category mm. and they won in the, you know, the best new comedy podcast and they <laughs> had never dreamt that they were a comedy team. No, exactly. They were quite sort of bewildered and <laughs> mystified. They always so. thought of themselves as quite serious yeah, journalists. Yeah, they are very serious British <laughs> radio broadcasters who sort of spoke with these beautiful Have voices. Have been producing and, comedy? <laughs> yes. One of them, uh, Jane Garvey uh, does Women's Hour. Very highly She's regarded. very highly you? regarded, yeah. And Fee Glover does all sorts of interesting things with the listening project. So just when I feel like something light and fun, I just go back to that. Yeah. What about you, Lou? Well, I was going to talk about years and years, so we've already talked about it. So, um, yeah, I don't I have, have much I can talk about. But it's I, just so good, isn't it? It is such a superb series. I just uh, am very, very excited about it. I, I watched two episodes, one after the other, and I, I really can't wait for the next four. Yeah. But actually, there is one other thing I was going to mention, which I've listened to very recently. I do listen to a podcast from time to time called Full Disclosure with James O'Brien. He's British, and he's got quite a strident voice and it doesn't always let I didn't think it always lend itself very well to podcasts for list, easy listening but he, he interviews some very interesting people and because of the terrible tragedy of the truck that was oh the lorry yeah the lorry in the UK with the Vietnamese people he decided last week to interview Gulwali Pasale who was an Afghanistan oh. um, citizen who fled uh, Afghanistan. Well, his mother sent him and his brother away from Afghanistan when he was just 13, I believe. Gosh. He may even have been on the run from age 11, in fact. And he is now a sort of TED Talk speaker and he goes around speaking to schools in Britain and, and elsewhere, really reminding children how incredibly lucky they are and trying to encourage them to make the most of every opportunity they have. And he talks to people about this incredible journey that he had and eventually 
eventually arriving in Britain in a lorry. It's really, really fascinating. His family in Afghanistan were sort of in no man's land because they had connections to the Taliban. They also had connections to the Mujahideen. His father was a doctor and refused not to treat people. Right. Regardless of their political views, and he paid the price for that. And eventually his mother decided that she needed to send her two sons away. Mm. Uh, and, and they did sort of paid for them both to be smuggled out. And That's the ultimate sacrifice because she wouldn't have known. And she hasn't seen that. She's still alive. Does she know they're okay? Um, yeah, she oh, absolutely knows they're okay, but oh. she doesn't really understand the trajectory of, of, no. of what's happened since. But it's a really interesting interview from the perspective of the refugee and the journey all the way yes, through to arriving in Britain. Yeah. Between the haves and the have-nots. Yeah. And they didn't believe he was as young as he was when he arrived as well. And he details... And he wouldn't have had any papers. No, he, he was treated very well in Italy, not so well in France by people. And he's very grateful for the people that did give him refuge along the way. And Oh, I'll have to listen yeah, to it's, that, It's Lou. absolutely fascinating. Yeah. And I think in light of what has happened in the UK, really interesting episode yeah. to listen to. Yeah, so And a good one to get your kids to have a listen to yes you, I absolutely think. i thought that yeah yeah so we um, we're going to talk about british authors for the next episode as well aren't yes, we we'll come back in a fortnight's time and we've got some more british authors which Fantastic. i just love and then we might round up the year with a christmas special yep excellent i'm looking forward to doing that good. lots of good christmas books on the horizon we really enjoyed today's episode and we hope you have too You'll find a list of the books we've reviewed and anything else we've talked about today in the show notes. You'll also find some of the books featured on our Instagram page at diving underscore in underscore podcast. If you would like to share with us any books you've been diving into, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at hello at divingin.com. And wherever you listen to the Diving In podcast, whatever platform you use, We would appreciate it if you would please subscribe and take a minute to rate and review us because that will mean we can grow our audience.